I want to share a kind of a Christmas message this morning without interrupting the series that we're busy doing. We're working through the book of Hebrews and I'm going to continue with that. But I have, uh, let's say, thought about the fact that this is Christmas time and I do want you to understand three things today. Christmas is about Jesus and the gospel and so is this chapter in Hebrews. So as we continue, if you have your Bible, if you want to read with us on the screen, we're going to read from Hebrews 4 verse 1 to 11. Hebrews 4 verse 1 to 11. Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I saw in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David so long ago afterward, and the words already quoted, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. <coughs> Heavenly Father, as we study your word this morning, I ask that you would, by your spirit, make it clear to us in our minds and hearts, and that you would impact us deeply through your word today, in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we saw how the generation of Israel under Moses failed to believe and trust God. So they came out of Egypt, they saw God's mighty deliverance from Pharaoh and from slavery, and they were free, but they were in the wilderness and on a journey with God, and they resisted entering into Canaan or crossing the Jordan and possessing this promised land. They did so because they didn't trust that God would defeat the enemies. So we had the ten spies... And they said, ah, there are too many giants. It is a land of milk and honey, but it's not something we can, we can get. But then you had Joshua and Caleb who said, actually God has spoken, we have faith, we could take this land. And those who failed to believe and trust God, as a result disobeyed His word, and then they failed to inherit the blessings of the promised land in that generation. It's true that Faith in what God has said is essential to possessing any and every inheritance God has for us. In other words, God doesn't force things upon you. He wants you to put your trust in Him and receive them. So God had commanded Israel to go and possess the land which was to be a blessing, but they resisted and didn't believe God. And that, of course, was not at all pleasing to God. And so in his wrath he said, this generation won't go into Canaan. They won't because they don't believe and trust. We need to hear and believe. Not just once in our lives, 
but actually in all the adventures that we go on with God. As you walk with God, you follow and serve Him by faith. You don't cease to exercise your faith now that you are a believer in Christ. You live actively wanting to hear God's Word, wanting to follow His Word, wanting to learn His ways, and wanting to walk in obedience. And all of that is an act of faith. And the writer to the Hebrews is telling them, actually you should, you should be very concerned that there's a promise of entering rest that still stands. In Hebrews 4 verse 1 he says, there's a promise, and while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Now, he's not talking solely about heaven or hell or salvation or not salvation. He's, he's talking about something that God has given us that we live in by faith. And if we don't, if we become, uh, let's say, unfaithful or faithless like the generation under Moses, then we're not going to live there. We're going to live in some other space in terms of how we experience our, our life. We're going to be living under some kind of stress or lack of peace or lack of the fulfillment of the promises of God. We're going to be living in a way that God doesn't want us to live. And so we want to unpack that this morning and understand more about what this offer of rest is. And the writer observes that there are different Sabbath rests. He, he mentions, starts to make reference to the, 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 the time God rested from His work, which is a reference to the creation. If you think about that, it's amazing. We know it so well as Genesis chapter 2. You know, if you read Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, that's God creating, and we'll look at it in a moment. And he, he the writer to the Hebrews, makes reference to the, that in Hebrews 4. 4 verse 4, he says, He has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. It's so interesting to me that he's not as concerned with quoting a chapter and verse, not that they had chapters and verses anyway, but he's just looking at a truth and saying, God rested from his work. So there is a rest we need to understand, and God himself was the pioneer of that rest. He's the one that actually set the example in resting at the right time. And then I think it would be helpful for us to go and actually dig into this a little bit to understand then what's going on. What's the writer talking about? The importance of this rest that we mustn't fail to enter into. And by the end he's even saying strive to enter into this rest. Which is to me a little bit of an oxymoron. It's like how can you be striving to rest. It's like putting effort in to take to, to, to not put effort in. Anyway, we'll get there. So let's look at this first reference to the rest, which we get the word Sabbath from, which is in Genesis chapter 2 when God created. I'll read from Genesis chapter 2 verse 1 to 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. It's amazing. We would want to give a person more points for being productive than parking off. We would want to say, surely the, the blessed and made holy would be all this creation. And it's actually the seventh day that God blessed and made holy, because on it He rested. 
And so when I look at the Sabbath idea, I've often heard Christians speaking about Sabbath principles and how you need to take a Sabbath and we get this term sabbatical, which could be a kind of a spiritual holiday. I don't know what it is really, never had one. And, uh, and we, we kind of spiritualize it and we, we, we look at it as a specific day and we look at it largely in the context of um, needing to be refreshed or being tired and needing to stop to have a rest. We think of rest as in connection with tiredness. But then it struck me there's absolutely no way God ever gets tired. There's, there's absolutely no way God rested because he was tired. That was not the motivating factor for rest. The motivating factor for rest in God's agenda was because the work was finished. The work was done. But not just stop, but blessed and holy is that seventh day because it's the day in which God then effectively stands back to put on display the glory of creation and says what you would say when you finished painting an awesome painting. You would stop, take a step back and look. Look at what's been done. Look at this glorious creation and what you gain from looking at it the awe, the wonder, the beauty, the majesty, the glory, you bask in it. You're effectively celebrating and enjoying something that's been accomplished. And God said, stop and then enjoy the blessing, the celebration, the, the glory of what's taken place. And so we know God didn't kind of leave us alone since man fell into sin and when humankind had wandered from him he started to reveal himself to man again to reach out to Abraham and then later through Moses he brought the Ten Commandments and the law to try and teach people again how they should be functioning because they'd lost the plot and one of the things God brought back to man was the idea of the Sabbath he said to Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 5 verse 12, I'm going to read from Deuteronomy 5 verse 12 to 15. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. In other words, civil society must come to a stop. You stop trading, stop doing business, stop working, and have a rest, desist. And then God says something interesting in His Word. He says, you shall remember that you are a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Yeah. Therefore. Because, so it's not because you're tired and you need to stop working, but God's saying, you're doing stuff that you can do, that you can control. You're being productive, you're earning money, you're going to work, you're going to the market, you're trading, you're doing all these things. And now, there's things that you can't do for yourself and you need to understand that. 
you need to understand that you couldn't deliver yourself from slavery in Egypt. You couldn't set yourself free from the biggest problems in your life. You couldn't deliver yourself from your situation of slavery. But God did. And in the light of that, God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. It's fascinating. So God's saying the Sabbath day is not even about you just taking a rest. It's about you recognizing what is it that you can't do. And you have to stop trying to do everything and think about that. Stop being so busy and take a moment to contemplate what God alone can do. He delivers you. He sets you free. He takes you out from your worst enemy Pharaoh and puts you into this journey to the promised land where you're supposed to go in with and do eventually go in with Joshua and possess a land of milk and honey and giants of course which is why it's not an analogy of heaven so we often extract extract principles and there is a principle here the principle is there is work and when the work is complete there's no more work to be done that was the Genesis 2 one God demonstrated that his work was done so you stop trying to do more when you finish the job Additionally, in Deuteronomy 5 verse 15, we see there is work that man can do and that there's a time when that work is done, but God, there are things God alone can do and we must stop and recognize what God alone can do. And then later in this chapter 4 of Hebrews, the, the writer gets a little bit more elaborate to explain that the promise to Israel of going into Canaan and taking a land where they would be at rest eventually, at rest from their enemies, at peace on all sides, was not the final plan of God. It was just a demonstration or a, like a little picture of his real plan. Because years later, David speaks, and David in Psalm 95, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, that today, don't harden your heart. God said you couldn't enter, but actually you still can, because today is the day that you should soften your heart to God and possess that by faith, that inheritance. So they're already living in the promised land, and yet there's still a Sabbath rest that needs to be entered. That's the point that the, um, the writer to the Hebrews is making. So I'm going to go back to Hebrews chapter 4 and read some of that. Let's look at um, Hebrews 4 verse 6 onwards. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Their disobedience was unbelief. They failed to trust God and believe in His word. Again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts like you did in the wildernesses, where that quote would go on. So for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. That's what the writer says. He's making it very clear there's yet another Sabbath. It's not the Sabbath rest of Canaan. There's another Sabbath rest you're supposed to enter into. And God spoke of it and said it's a, it's a today issue. It's something that you are supposed to apprehend in your life right now. 
that God wants you to enter into something with Him. And goes on to say, So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So there's this, there's this reference coming through again. That there's work, there's rest, and there's a time to stop your works and enter into rest. All of this is by faith. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. The striving then is with your propensity or your tendency to try and do things yourself. Is to stop and see what God has done. You work, 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 stop, says Deuteronomy, and see what God did. He's the one that delivered you from slavery. You believers, work, 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 but stop and see what God has done through Christ. And so the striving is actually because we have a tendency to live in two covenants. We have a tendency to move between the understanding of salvation uh, by grace through faith, and then we go back into serving God in a way that we feel at times we're going to have to work and achieve something for God in order to make Him satisfied with us. So we, let me find my place, totally lost my place. So this rest, what exactly is it? Well, let me go and say, it's not because of tiredness, but it is for appreciating. First creation and now salvation. See, the first time God rested, He had finished all the work and He stopped and the day became holy in order to appreciate, in order to worship, in order to enjoy. Now, we're seeing the idea of salvation come into the picture and for the believer, this Sabbath rest that we enter in the day called today is actually into the work of Christ in saving us. So effectively what the writer to Hebrews explains here and he elaborates further later in the book, but you find that there is a Sabbath rest and that rest, the final rest, is in Christ himself. And so while we've seen the theme in Hebrews so far is to show us Christ as superior, Christ as the final prophet, Christ as the final word, Christ as the great high priest, and now we see Christ is actually the Sabbath rest for the believer. And so what we discover here is that in the context of this good news that we've received, we have to understand how does it bring us into rest. And that's again a very good opportunity for us to understand the gospel. When you look at most religions, and most instinctive behavior in your life. Your desire is to somehow make yourself acceptable to God. Most religions, including Judaism, were, were built around this idea that we would have to perform sacrifices in order to win atonement, in order to propitiate or make peace with God. And so we know we've done wrong. We're trying to deal with this problem. We're enslaved to sin. 
we are unable to deliver ourselves, but we'll do our best to become better people, so maybe God will accept us. So you go to many religious people and you say, why would you go to heaven? And they say, because I'm a good person, or I'm trying to be a good person. But privately they know they're not perfect, and they know God is perfect, and so they live under this kind of a fear of the judgment that will come against all sin one day. And they think, how can I make myself acceptable to God? I can make myself acceptable to God if I work harder at being a good person. And so if you're a Jew, that means, you know, give faithfully in the, you know, the giving, donate to charity. If you're a Muslim, it means follow the, the rules that they follow. It means try and live up to some high moral standard. But you never know if you actually got there. You never know if you were good enough. But actually God's word just tells it like it is. It says, sorry, your righteous deeds are like filthy rags in his sight. God is so holy and so perfect that there's simply no way any of your works or your deeds can be presented to him as anything that would make up for your failures. So none of our attempts to atone for ourselves would ever successfully deal with the problem of ourselves, our sin and our separation from God. So the good news came was that God himself would put forward the sacrifice, that he would provide the lamb, his own son, as the sacrifice for sin. And so Jesus at Christmas time we are celebrating because he came into this world as a, a new Adam, as a, as, a, as, a, as a human. God took on flesh and became a man. And as a man, he was born without sin because he wasn't born physically and spiritually. He wasn't born of the original Adam who sinned. He was born of the Holy Spirit, conceived by the Holy Spirit. So he comes into the world without a sin nature. He lives a sinless life, never fails, never sins, and gets put forward on the cross as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as the sacrifice who atones for sin, and when you hear that message, the point is when Jesus was on the cross and he cried out, it is finished, he was saying, now I have done the work of salvation. Yes. You are justified. You are, as human humanity, you are set right with God because I've paid the sin debt for all the sins of the world. That's why John the Baptist looked at Jesus and said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus, why could he do that? Well, because he was a man, he could represent man. But because he was the Son of God, the only Son of God, meaning God the Son, because he was divine, that's why we're singing, O Holy Night, O Night Divine, because he was divine, because he was God, his life could ransom the lives of all of humanity. He ransomed many through one sacrifice. Many who were descended of Adam died because of one man's sin. So sin entered the world through Adam, but salvation comes through Jesus. As sin came to many from the one man, so salvation comes to those who believe. And the failure to enter the rest is a failure to believe in the finished work of Christ on the cross. And so this is this idea that there's a Sabbath rest you can live in. It's the good news, and it's only received by somebody who says, yes, I actually believe that. Let me explain it to you. Um, it's Christmas time. God comes and He says, 
I'm going to give you the gift of my son as a savior. He's going to be wrapped up as a baby and look particularly innocuous and meaningless in a manger. I don't know, you know the Christmas story. Here's Jesus. The, the, the devil knows something's going on, knows this is God's plan to save the world, stirs up Herod to try and kill all the babies under two years old in that region of the world, just around there, not all over the world, just around there. And, and yet Jesus in this vulnerability, he grows up as a man, experiences all of life on our behalf, but never messes up. And God says, this is my gift to you. It's a free gift of salvation. I'm going to pay through my son. I'm going to pay the debt for sin. Now, when I... Let me start with one story. Sometimes I want to be nice to my dog, and she doesn't trust me. Because sometimes I'm not so nice to my dog. Sometimes I'm angry with her and I chase her with a stick because she was chewing something she wasn't supposed to chew. And then she gets a bit distrustful. And so then one day I come and I offer her something and she looks at it and she leans away from me and looks all suspicious. And it makes me feel so frustrated because I'm like, this is good for you. This is what I want you to have. You're going to enjoy this. And she's like, no, no, you're trying to trick me. I won't take that. You're trying to trick me. There's this response people have to God when He comes and He brings them the Gospel. And He offers Jesus as the Savior to take away sin. And people look and they say, I'm not so sure about that. I don't, I don't know if I can trust this offer. Can I really put my trust in God to save me? Would God really do this? And so they, they get all suspicious and all hesitant. But if I really, as a dad, if I had come with a very special gift and I had wrapped it up for one of my kids and I came to my kids and I said, here, here's a gift for you. And they shrunk away and they refused to take it. It did grieve my heart. And that's how God felt when Israel, the ten spies, said, we don't want to go into the promised land. God had said, I've got a land flowing with milk and honey to give you, but you're going to have to fight some giants. You're going to have to possess this inheritance by faith. And they had no faith in God. They had no trust that He was trying to bless them. And so they shrank back in unbelief. Now, the same happens with the gospel. God comes and He brings it to the world and He says, here is the gift of my son. This is incomparably greater than Canaan was to Israel. It's incomparably more serious. And God says, I want you to come to Christ and understand once and for all, I am forgiving you of your sin. You will never, ever have to pay for your sin. You will never, ever have to do one religious act for your salvation. But this is God's grace. Grace means unmerited, it's undeserved kindness. God offers undeserved kindness to us. But if we don't receive the gift by faith, we don't have it. We don't get, we don't get that gift. So the, the gift is offered by grace, but received by faith. And that's why not everyone is going to be in that Sabbath rest. Not everyone is going to be in heaven one day. Because even though the gospel gets preached, people say... Nah, I don't believe that. Someone once said this. It was a powerful, powerful um, recognition of what the gospel means and why it offends our pride so deeply. 
when Tim Keller was explaining the gospel to one of the women in New York in the church, and she came and she said something like, if this is true, then it's very scary. I'm paraphrasing, I can't tell you the story accurately. But she basically said that it's terrifying to accept salvation when you have absolutely no bargaining power. You have no way you can ever repay God. You have no way that you could ever, ever get back in control. Because God is saying, you cannot save yourself, and I will save you, and you will never be able to pay back that debt. You will be eternally indebted to God for His mercy. He will eternally own you. You will never be free. But the thing I've said before is we never were free. We've never been free. We've been enslaved to our sin. We've been enslaved to our sinful natures. We've been disappointing ourselves and feeling guilt and grief and distress in our souls. And we weren't free. And Jesus says, I came and I conquered death for you. I paid for your sin. And now you become mine. That's the deal of salvation. And the lady said, that's very scary. See, our pride is very threatened because our pride has to die. Our pride has to get to the point where we say, yes, it's true. None of my goodness is good enough for God. None of my righteous deeds could ever pay him back. And even after becoming a Christian, God says, now you get to rest in that fact. That word rest, it means lie down, desist. It actually means repose. I don't know, these are old English words we don't use so often. But your pose is your position to repose, meant to like recline. So Sabbath rest means to lie down and repose. Shall I demonstrate? I'm a bit tired. I was sick last week. I'd love to have a sleep right now. So you just like lie down there, put your head on the pillow of God's grace, and you repose. Sabbath rest. It's not another work, people. Keeping the Sabbath is not another work. It's not checking off another ten, one of the Ten Commandments and saying, I also did that for you, God. No, no, it's genuinely, God says, stop trying to save yourself. Stop worrying about salvation even. I've got it covered. Jesus paid it all. Stop worrying about how you're going to get to heaven. You go to heaven because of Jesus. There's no more you can add to that. There's no more you can do now. You rest. And entering into that kind of a Sabbath rest is something that a Christian is supposed to do in this life before we go to heaven, and to live in it, in that place in Christ. Which is why Christ said, Come to me, all you who are weary, who have labored, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. He's talking about oxen that work, they get yoked together with a heavy bar across their necks and they pull something and Jesus says, when you connect it to me, I'll pull all the load. I take all the weight. You just get to dangle there from the yoke and enjoy yourself like a kid in a swing. In terms of salvation, Jesus does it all and God says, stay in that rest. Your entire life as a Christian, live in the Sabbath rest knowing that God has done everything for you. So this is why Keith Green, when he sang the song, When I Hear the Praises Start, he could sing, My, my son, my son, why are you striving? You can't add 
one thing to what's been done for you. I did it all when I was dying. Rest in your faith, my peace will come to you. Rest in your faith, my peace will come to you. So we fight the good fight of faith, but always understanding that the actual victory is Christ. We rest in our faith, knowing the peace of God all the time. And when the devil comes and says, you're not working hard enough, I say, Jesus did it all. I don't have to work to gain the approval of God. I don't have to work to deal with the problem of sin. If I want to be ministry fruitful, the only way Jesus says that you can bear good fruit is if you abide in Him. Abide. What does abide mean? It means make it your abode. Make your home in Christ. What do you do when you're at home? Take your shoes off. Not, you know, it's a picture of chilling. You're going to hang out, relax, be yourself, be at peace. This is your place. That's what God is saying to you. Come to Jesus. He becomes your Sabbath rest. He is your home. He's the one that provided everything for you. Rest in Him. Take your shoes off. Relax. You're saved. Your sins have been forgiven. There's peace between you and God in heaven. There will always be peace between you and God. Oh yeah, you sinned again last week. Hands up anyone who didn't sin. I'm quickly putting my hand down. There must be innumerable ways in which we still mess up. But God says, rest in the knowledge Jesus is your salvation. He's paid it all. So what we've seen now, I'm nearly finished. The writer to the Hebrews is progressing through a series of strengths that you need to understand. In Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 1, we read that we should pay much closer attention to this great salvation. So he, he, he explains Christ's superiority and then he says, pay close attention to this great salvation. You Christian, you believer, you need to pay close attention to salvation your whole life. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, pay attention to the Savior. He says, consider and look at and contemplate Jesus. And then he says in the rest of chapter 3, exercise faith. Hear and believe in order to possess the inheritance God has for you. And now, in chapter 4, he says, rest in your faith. Trust in the finished work of Christ for your salvation and abide in Him for your fruitfulness. I love this idea that God would stop on the seventh day and take a whole day, which actually I don't know if He ever, if that day of God's rest ever ceased, to look at creation and say, it's glorious. We worship in response. But Hebrews is showing us that the Sabbath rest of Christ is where you stop and then you appreciate the work of salvation. You stop and you look at Jesus and you say, wow, you did it all. Everything. See, you don't carry on working if the work is done. And we don't carry on working to save ourselves. Not that way. Not with that angst, not in that fleshly, I'm going to make myself better. We do carry on working in the sense of abiding in Christ, obeying God, serving God, 
seeking to follow his every instruction, laboring six days a week for the kingdom of God in your life, doing all kinds of projects and things for the good of humanity and for the gospel to go out. I'm not suggesting anything to do with laziness. See, none of this had to do with tiredness. All of it has to do with faith and understanding. All of it has to do with the gospel and knowing what Jesus has done. So that at the right time you can stop and worship. Stop and gaze at the glory of God and say, how great you are, God. Israel was supposed to recognize God's wondrous deeds, how he delivered them from Pharaoh. We must recognize Christ's wondrous deed, how he has delivered us from sin. Stop. That's what the Sabbath rest is about. In fact, we should live in that delight every day, ongoingly, acknowledging joyfully that the work is complete in Christ Jesus. And then get on with our work, whatever it is God has called us to do.